Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with Dr. Alyssa Paredes. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm so excited to discuss your work. I found it really wonderful um, and awesome. So yeah, would you mind starting by introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. Um, Again, my name is Elisa Paredes. Uh, I'm assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, And I'm a Filipino person. That's where I grew up. And that's a big component of the work that I do. Um, So I do field work. I do immersive uh, and engaged field work uh, in environmental anthropology in the Philippines and in Japan. Um, and I have interests in following transnational supply chains across these two different places. I'm also very interested in plantation economies and in following environmental campaigns that form around uh, the environment, uh, around the plantation economies um, in the Philippines for the Japanese market. Um, I teach classes in environmental anthropology and in social cultural anthropology as well. Um, So, you know, educating about environmental issues, of course, is also another uh, large component of why I do what I do. Um, Before we dive more into one of your most recent publications on the banana apocalypse, what was your what is your history with plants? When was kind of like the first time you realized or noticed plants? Um, Were they something that popped up in your community or in your family a lot? What's your journey with plants been? Uh, that's a fantastic question. You know, I was really inspired by it and largely inspired because I realized actually that I'm very new to like thinking about and thinking with plants, uh, if I'm being entirely candid with you. I grew up, like I mentioned already a little bit briefly, I grew up uh, in the Philippines. Um, this is a, a tropical country um, that uh, recognizes itself in every way as an agricultural country. Uh, and it's incredibly lush. I mean, uh, just full of greenery everywhere, uh, even in the urban capital of Manila, which is where I grew up. As someone who grew up in such an incredibly lush environment, I really didn't think seriously um, about plant life until um, far, far, far more recently. I had moved to the United States um, for a college degree and ended up doing work um, in the food and beverage industry for a Japanese multinational. Uh, and there's a lot that I can say about that whole experience. But um, this was a Japanese multinational company that traded in green tea. Um, so it was a tea company, but not in the sense of like a cute little, this was not in any way like a cute little cafe that like sold loose leaf tea or anything quite like that. It was really a lot more like the Japanese version of PepsiCo, if you will. Um, So, you know, I started, I guess I started thinking about plants in a kind of uh, sort of um, inside out kind of way uh, as part of like, I was in every way a middleman in this corporation, right? Um, And I was struck as I was working there, how little I actually knew um, about about, I mean, tea is a plant, you know, that's what it is. Um, But I was so struck by how little I knew about this, about the commodity that was at the very, very center of everything that we did day in and day out. Um, So that was, you know, again, like realizing um, 
not really like, you know, realizing that, um, realizing that, yeah, so really like I started thinking about plants by recognize, by recognizing how little I actually knew or could know um, about, um, about, about plants um, as a part of this corporation. So then I, I left that company. Um, I left my position there to start a graduate degree, uh, bringing with me those interests in the food system, in transnational food systems, um, and also in industrial agriculture and industrial farming. Um, and one thing led to another, and that's kind of how the research that I do now, currently on the banana plantation economy between the Philippines and J and Japan, was was born. Your work is really fascinating. The I read two articles, but the one that it, we're focusing on for today um, is focused, like you said, on um, banana plantations in the Philippines. And so one of the things that came up in your article, Experimental Science for the Banana Apocalypse, Counterpolitics in the Plantatiocene, and we'll provide a link for sure so that folks listening can access that and read that as well. One of the things that you talk about and I really appreciate is that you kind of weave in narrative along the way um, alongside theory. And so you talk about your experiences and one of the people that you work with, his name is Isidro. I was really struck by the work of Isidro. Um, could you describe him and his work for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So let me um, let me offer just um, just a little bit of context uh, for the audience before I say a little bit more about because I think it'll help explain like how I got to know Isidro and why my friendship um, with this person was so important and so central, so formative to um, the research that I do. So um, like I said, I do research on banana plantations uh, and banana plantations all around the world are confronted with a very, very serious problem. And that serious problem uh, goes by the name of Fusarium wilt tropical race four. Fusarium wilt is a fungal disease uh, that has spread globally and it is affecting, um, affecting the volume at which we're able to produce bananas for export everywhere in the world. So everywhere there's a serious export industry in this commodity, um, including the Philippines, other parts of Asia, Latin America, the Central and South America, Africa, uh, Australia uh, included. Um, there's there has been for the there has been developing for the last few decades a very virulent kind of fungal disease. Now, um, what I should say is that anyone who's familiar with industrial plantations will know that uh, industrial plantations deal with hundreds of disease day in and day out. You know, there there's so many different diseases of the plantation that um, managers have to contend with uh, on the daily. Right now, the reason Fusarium wilt tropical race four is so um, important and so interesting to an environmental anthropologist like myself is because this is one disease, the only disease um, that does not have a scientifically viable solution to. What do I mean by that? Um, by and large, all of those hundreds of diseases that impact the plantation have a quote unquote solution in the form of a pesticide, right? So 
Um, the industry de um, develops agricultural pesticides uh, and they are effective in controlling the problems of the plantation. I mean, effective, of course, being a term that we can certainly debate, right? But in any case, Fusarium wilt um, has is such a confounding disease that there is not an available pesticide um, to kill it, right? Now, that, of course, has caused a lot of, I mean, in not even exaggerating, right, a quote-unquote state of emergency um, in different parts of the world that export bananas because their volumes are so seriously threatened by this incurable, scientifically incurable disease. That is where Isidro comes in, right? So here you have, on the one hand, a disease that's totally vexes scientists, right? Like professional, um, professional plant pathologists who have made careers, um, entire disciplines, you know, based on the development of effective pesticides for fungal problems um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have, um, yeah, you have, you have like um, a whole set of other people who are not professional scientists, who are not, who are in every way amateur kind of experimenters, right? And they're kind of finding solutions um, to this problem uh, in, you know, it, it, like they're finding solutions to a problem that science uh, with a large capital S, you know, has deemed uh, unsolvable, right? And that's, so that's Isidro. Like Isidro is this um, totally charismatic, um, you know, totally charismatic guy, but who is um, in every other way, like an ordinary Filipino guy, you know? I mean, he, um, he grew up in um, a rather poor sort of provincial context in the Southern Philippines. You know, he doesn't have a PhD in, in any way, but he has developed um, a biological control, meaning a non-pesticide-based, non-chemical um, control to, um, to as an answer to Fusarium wilt tropical race four. Um, and so I sought him out. Um, I met, or rather I met him in the course of doing field work on this, um, uh, on this disease. Uh, and was so struck by the charisma of this man who claims to be uh, claims to have found a solution um, to this problem, right? And that is has been so interesting for me, largely because, uh, I mean, these are fantastical claims, right? I mean, these are fantastical claims. He's Here's a man who's saying that he developed this biological control through a series of God-given dreams. Uh, and that is totally remarkable. And everywhere he says that, you know, conventional scientists have gone, well, you know, those are that that's like that's that's like a that's like cult speak, you know, that's like those are the fantastical claims of a pseudoscientist. Why do you believe in that stuff? Um so it's really opened up sort of interesting conversations about uh, who gets to play a role in science, um, who are the people who are considered to be um, obvious, uh, you know, obvious knowledge makers, and who are the people for, who are excluded from that. Um, and I think that the reason that this disease is so interesting is because it opens up that space. Um, it's opened up that space for kind of newcomers uh, to enter into the scene.
maybe I'll stop there and kind of like uh, see where the rest of your questions take us. There's so much more to say. That's a great place to kind of transition into the next question I had about a term um, and concept that you and Isidro come up with together called science in vivo. Um, Exploring how to engage with like the different scientific methodologies um, as a perennial concern for a lot of people in critical plant studies. Um, And maybe we'll get into this later, but there seems to be like lived experience of relationships with plants and then what scientific, mainstream scientific literature tells us plants can and can't do. And, you know, so there's this this interesting tension there. Um, So could you explain for our audience, um, what is science in vivo and how does it work? Thank you so much for that question. Yes. Um, And thank you also for mentioning that Science in Vivo is in every way um, a concept that I've developed in conversation with my friend Isidro, right? And to define what Science in Vivo is, I think it's actually first important to explain what Science in Vivo is not, right? I mean, and Isidro came up with this idea, right? I mean, he often introduces himself, again, as this sort of regular DIY kind of scientific experimenter. Um, I was struck by how often he described himself as somebody who works in vivo and not in vitro. So... I work in vivo. I'm I'm in vivo, not in vitro, right? He was like, say things like that all the time with me. Um, and when he did that, it was really what he was trying to express, right? Was that he was not the kind of like, he's the kind of scientist who believes in experimenting that doesn't rely on a fancy laboratory. You don't need to have an air conditioned room. You don't need to have like, You don't need to have the most state-of-the-art equipment to be a knowledge producer, right? Like you can go out into the forest, um, learn things from the forest, learn things from, you know, I mean, he was, here's a person who was even like drawing from the Bible, finding inspiration everywhere, right? And that's what science in vivo is, right? Unlike a kind of vision of science in vitro where that relies on controlling, like controlling the environment, a control relies entirely on a controlled environment. You know, you know how when you do like a scientific experiment, a lab experiment, you have these controlled variables and you like, you have a wet lab and everything in the wet lab is sort of, you know, it's like, it's an aesthetic environment, right? It's like, it's closed off. Everything has to be controlled so that you, um, you know, that's how you come to understand the relationship between different variables, right? Is by controlling them in particular ways and manipulating them in particular ways. Now, science in vivo doesn't operate like that, right? I mean, this is a vision of science that is really open up to like the actual world, like the real world that is cross-contaminated all the time, right? Um, You know, and uh, it's, so science in vivo is this vision of science that is, um, that is based, where that draws knowledge from like real world situations. that don't rely on controlling variables, don't rely on sort of having this entirely ascetic environment, right? It's a vision of science that is open to people like him, people like Isidro, who aren't credentialed, who aren't recognized um, in the same way in, in the institution, that it, in scientific institutions, right? But it's also open to, this is a vision of science where it's not the exper- it's not just the human experimenter 
who is at the center of everything and is the sole kind of creator of knowledge, right? I mean, um, I write about this a little bit, um, quite quite a bit in the article, right? Isidro is drawing inspiration from all kinds of non-human entities that he's encountering uh, in the process of his work, right? Like he's talking about microbes showing up, you know, showing up uh, in the forest and he like talks to them. He says, you know, like, why did you show yourself to me today? Like, you know, what are you trying to say? Are you perhaps the answers that I'm looking for in, you know, my, my, the work that I'm doing in this research that I'm doing, right? Um, he is talking to God. I mean, God is providing him with a number of visions as well, right? He's he's sort of seeing the forest as uh, as kind of a giant test tube, if you will, right? Like exploding the test tube, um, exploding that test tube and kind of looking at the forest itself as a kind of scaled out uh, scientific experiment. Um, which I thought was so incredibly inspiring, and and that those are sort of the ideas that science in vivo tries tries to capture. Um, there was another part though of your of your question that was about um, kind of thinking about the tensions that form between what we might recognize as normal sci or science in vitro, if you will, a kind of normative institutionalized science, right? And science in vivo, which is this um, sort of DIY realm of like rogue experimenters like my friend. Um, you know, one of your questions was about like, you know, how do you think through those tension, the tensions that form here? And the one thing that I want to say kind of to that, right, is that it's not only important that we think about, you know, it's not only important that these two kinds of ways of producing knowledge, right, coexist alongside each other um, in, har in, in peaceful sort of but separate harmony, right? It's actually totally necessary for our ecological condition of the 21st century for these two kinds of forms of knowledge to be in closer conversation with each other and to recognize um, to recognize the strengths and respect the kind of differences um, um, across uh, across you know science that's in vivo and in vitro, right? Um, they actually need to work with each other because we will continue to encounter, I think, in moving forward in the 21st century, right? Um, all kinds of other things like Fusarium will tropical race one, like all like a number of other kinds of problems that actually aren't easily solvable with the tools that are readily available to science in vitro, to a normative kind of conventional institutional science, right? And we're starting to see this all the time. I mean, in many different ways, right? Super weeds are another I, uh, example that come to mind, right? This is a problem um, that was created by um, by whatever you want to call it, like modern scientific procedure or protocol, right? But that continues to kind of confound even scientists. Um, I, in the in my article, um, I refer to those problems as um, uh, methodological impasses. Um, this is kind of, I mean, it, it sounds like a fancy word, but the idea is very simple, right? I mean, an impasse is kind of an unsolvable, it's like, it's a, when you hit the end of like a paradigm, right? Like um, a paradigm is uh, it's it's a kind of it's a system for offering solutions to problems, right? But every once in a while, you have um, 
kind of a paradigm shifting problem that reveals itself. Uh, and when it reveals itself, it makes clear that actually the way business as usual isn't going to cut it anymore. Um, and that's what Fusarium Wilt Tropical Race for is to me. Um, it's a methodological impasse that asks us to think about ways um, that we might break out of the conventional paradigm of industrial agriculture. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I love the way you describe it. Um, in the article, there's an anecdote that you share where there's a speaker talking about the wonders of um, this new biological approach to solving the issue. And I think you had mentioned that there were some businessmen in the audience that kind of chuckled when they were talking about how it was a gift and a vision from God. But the businessmen were still there. And I bet that they were ready to like probably buy the solution, you know, if it is indeed a, a good solution to this problem that they have. Right, right, exactly. I mean, and and that's kind of the power of the methodological impasse, right? It's that once you have an anomaly to the paradigm, you can't you can't you can't close your eyes to that. Like you can't just continue going on with business as usual, right? Um, it's a powerful thing that even gets non-believers like these businessmen, these sort of um, plant pathologists, uh, you know, career career scientists. Um, yeah, they have to show up to that because you know, seeing is seeing is believing, I guess. Another facet that I found really moving in your work um, that was able to articulate something that I've seen in the work. I, I mean, I feel like there are all of these kind of issues right under the surface um, of yeah. a lot of work, at least in my field, environmental ethics, um, that there are all of these tensions that are really hard to navigate. So one of them that you mentioned um, is the relationship between human social justice move movements and human connection with other kin. So whether that's animal, plant, microbial, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about that um, and also um, discuss why it's important to you in your research. Um, and yeah, discuss a little bit more about how you navigate the tensions in light of histories of human oppression and legacies of difference making. I know I've experienced like in some of my writing talking about, you know, how do we ethically, how do we admit moral value in, for example, other animals or plants without it kind of making the difference-making legacies of oppression of certain groups or multiple groups of humans all the worse? Yes, um, it's a huge question and I love it. I think it's really great. It's an important one for me. So um, I'll tackle it sort of in little bits here and try to think um, sort of ethnographically through the case that I'm, I'm most interested in, right? So the question was like, how do you navigate uh, the tensions that often 
come up um, between like, you know, human social justice movements and uh, the human connection with um, non-human kin like plants and animals. So so um, here's like a really a, a, a really sort of um, a real life situation where I started thinking about precisely this, right? Um, I was following an environmental campaign uh, that had formed around the plantation, around the banana plantations where I work, right? Um, so on these, and this is a, this is an issue that is separate from the Fusarium Wilt one. Um, on plantations, on banana plantations, um, some pes uh, a number of pesticides are applied using the use of um, through the use of lightweight aircrafts called crop dusters. Right. So these are helicopters or planes um, that are loaded with um, fungicides that are then sprayed over uh, sprayed over the canopy of the plantation. Now, um, you can't control the wind, um, which means, of course, that uh, pesticide drift is a total reality uh, in the in the spaces around the plantation. Now, in the Philippines, um, plantations, uh, I mean, sorry, uh, residential communities, there are residential communities that have formed within and alongside the perimeter of the plantation. Um, there's many of them, many people um, live uh, in those areas, right? And they are exposed to chemical drift um, about two times a week, which is how often spraying happens in many of the plantations where I work, right? Um, so I'm following this campaign um, against aerial spraying. Um, this is a campaign that started, uh, you know, in its earlier stages, in its very, very earliest stages in the year 2005 to 2007. Um, and it's a longstanding, uh, it's a longstanding campaign that's still ongoing um, with a really interesting history, right? But I'm following this campaign. And what was striking to me um, was its slogan. And the slogan that the activists chose um, to, and you know, to uh, encapsulate their vision, right, of environmental justice was, we are not pests, right? We are not pests. This was the idea that they had chosen that really kind of for them articulated what they were asking for, um, uh, what they were demanding, um, their vision, their own vision of justice, right? We are not pests, meaning I am a human being. I deserve the dignity that a human being deserves. Do not treat me like a pest because pesticides are meant for insects, basically. Pesticides are meant for insects, but I'm not an insect. I am a human being, and therefore I deserve to be freed from exposure to pesticides. Now, this is interesting to me. I mean, this was a super duper loaded statement, right? Because on the one hand, absolutely, human beings deserve to be um, they deserve to be free from um, sl the slow violence of of toxic chemicals that they are exposed to um, uh, in a, you know week in and week out. But on the other hand, they were making those claims for justice by basically basically pushing off that form of violence onto non-human beings, right? Saying like, okay, it's fine to me if you spray the pesticides on insects because that's what. That those are what's what the pesticides are for, right? The pesticides are for insects, and they're not for me. Um, and to me, you know, uh, what was important for me to kind of figure out uh, in the course of doing this research was how come, how come that's how? Why is it exactly that human communities, that Filipino communities, had come to envision justice in this way? 
um, come to envision justice as um, an insistence on human dignities, kind of essentially at the expense uh, of protection for other beings, um, other kinds of other kinds of of life, including insects, uh, insects, uh, pests, uh, other kinds of yeah biological life forms that are deemed uh, pestiferous life, you know, pests. Um, and that opened up all kinds of questions about how, you know, the colonial legacies that um, um, Filipino communities bear uh, of having been sort of deemed um, pestiferous life themselves, um, often at the hands of, of colonial forces. Um, in this case, uh, the American colonial occupation um, and the early parts of the 20th century, right? Um, you know, there are many different historical accounts in the archive of um, American colonial officers sort of um, uh, positioning Native Filipino peoples as monkey-like, uh, as dog eaters, um, as pesty, you know, just like as basically as like non-civilized barbaric savages um, who were animal-like in their, you know, who are animal-like in their in their habits and in their uh, in their desires, right? And which of course was um, all very intentional and all very uh, all you know, all purposeful for justifying the presence of American um, colonial uh, colonizers in the Philippines in the first place. The struggle for me then, um, and this is, you know, I write about this in a chapter that I wrote for an incredible collection called, um, you know, The Promise of Multi-Species Justice, edited by Sophie Chow, Karen Bolander, uh, and Eben Kirksey. Um, and in that chapter, which is called We Are Not Pests, right? The challenge um, that I set out for myself, right, is, um, well, on the one hand, explaining how exactly we've come to this point in history where we envision environmental justice at the expense, environmental justice for humans at the expense of you know, uh, flourishing uh, of the the flourishing of non-human life, right? Uh, and also how we how we can move towards a more capacious understanding of ecological justice in the first place, right? Uh, and I end that chapter with a kind of reversal of the the slogan that I started with, right? The slogan that I started with was "We are not pests," and the challenge that I pose to the readers uh, of that chapter is what if instead of saying we are not pests, what if we what if we embraced that pestiness, right? And said, and 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 you know, and said and said, we are all pests. You know, all of us, uh, all forms of biological life. Um, there are many different forms of biological life, human, uh, insect, plant, animal, that has that have been deemed pestiferous life by powerful institutions. And for me, that is a vision of justice that is more capacious, um, uh, more capacious and a non non-exclusive. Yeah, I it's I just love the way that you explain that relationship because it does seem like a a possible uh aspect of a lot of oppressive um either regimes or parties or groups 
is to kind of take people who don't have the power, whether they're people, humans, or, you know, other members of um, the biotic community, and kind of say, okay, you have this limited source of, you know, resources. Now you have to figure out who's most deserving or most important at the expense of others. And so it kind of sets up this antagonism um, that seems totally artificial, (laughs) you know, Um, but then it's like, it is, I think it's so necessary to like, still have that legacy of oppression when we're envisioning possible futures to like, because the consequences of that oppression are alive and well, especially in people who have been targeted by it. And so, um, yeah, it's just really beautiful, I think, the way that you describe it, both in Science in Vivo and also in your work on pesticides. It seems like there's a common theme of like, you know, breaking up this kind of institutional either hierarchy or, you know, domination. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that what you said really captures really captures the like crux of the issue here, right? Like we've come to think about justice, um, environmental justice, ecological justice as a limited source, as this kind of zero sum game, right? Where it's like my happiness, my flourishing, my ability to like live um, an abundant life must come at the expense of somebody else. And what needs to be clear, I think, is that, I mean, these communities, of course, the activist communities that I'm talking about, that's not their fault. That is an inheritance um, from an a, like a longer colonial legacy uh, that has been imposed on them, right? Uh, and that's why it's important to kind of bring in history here, right? Is to show that like, this is not just their kind of callousness or like, you know, it's not just their like personal failing. It's an inheritance from a history that actually now we must break away from. Um, we we ought to challenge ourselves to break away from how do we think about justice in a way that isn't not as a like that isn't a limited source where it's not a zero sum game where actually we can we can we can make this happen for you know for 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 all of us just by kind of like tweaking a little bit um, tweaking a little bit uh, our 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 vision and kind of recognizing the paradigms that we inherited that we inherit for what they are, right? Paradigms that do have boundaries and can be broken out of. Do you have anything else that you want to make sure that we share with the audience that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet? I guess I do. And this is maybe just another way of um, just another way of like putting it, putting what we've already been talking about, I think, in many different ways. Well, I think what I would like to say is that for everyone who has an interest, the listeners to this um, to this podcast, uh, folks who have serious, uh, you know, investments and intellectual and political interest in critical plant studies, I think that it's important that we acknowledge that there is a critique, you know, a critique of of people who do critical plant studies, who do critical animal studies, um, that somehow those interests or investments in plant and animal life is somehow like taking away from, is somehow depoliticizing or apolitical. I think that that is um, a critique that 
we, and I include myself in this community, right, of people who are invested in critical plant studies, right, that there is a critique uh, from other from other facets of uh, the discipline, whether it's anthropology or philosophy, uh, other critical, um, you know, other critical intellectual traditions, right? That that's somehow depolitical or apolitic. Uh, that that's apolitical or depoliticizing. Um, and on the one hand, I mean, it, that sounds unfair, but on the other hand, I think that it is a critique that we should take very, very seriously. The idea to this critique is that by taking seriously non-human not non the non-human realm were somehow taking away from investments in the human realm uh and the reason why that is the reason that critique comes up in the first place from our colleagues is because um many pockets of critical plant and animal studies does not recognize that there are people, especially um, Black folks, who have not been afforded full personhood in the law in the same way that other people do, right? So that we can, so their challenge to us, right, is that actually in between the categories of human and non-human, there is another tertiary category, which is the dehumanized the, you know, the subhuman, the parahuman, the quasi-human. I mean, this is a very recent part of even of US, uh, US national history, right? I mean, um, Black, Black human beings, members of the Black community were not recognized as full persons in uh, the law until fairly recently. And so there's, there's a way that we can take what we do, leverage what we do, um, as people, as scholars who are interested uh, in non-humans, um, there's a way that we should be in close conversation uh, with with that aspect as well, and to think critically, uh, to think critically about personhood as a category that is not universally occupied and not universally privileged um, in the same way for everybody. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, and I think you can see it especially in like recent publications, how it's like we're doing so much catch-up work of <laughs> including more voices and more experience and more work in, from communities that historically in the insti in educational institutions at least have been dehumanized and considered lesser and not allowed mm -hmm. into some of the knowledge-making spaces for sure. Um yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because it is an incredibly important and I think core concern that we should have um, people who are working with plants and other animals. Um, the justice is is multifaceted. So yeah, exactly. Well, if people want to follow your work, um, what type of resources should they look at? Um, or do you have any upcoming projects or ongoing projects that you're really excited about? Yeah, thanks so much for asking me about that, Kate. Um, so 
the first thing I should say is um, I do have a personal website. It's just my name, Elisa Paredes. Um, I think it's maybe just lisaparedes.com. Um, but I'm happy to share the link to that. Um, I have a couple of articles that are sort of circulating in the ether. Um, the uh, the one that we first talked about on Fusarium Wilt Tropical Race 4, uh, again, is this piece called Experimental Science for the Banana Apocalypse. Um, and that was published in a journal called Ethnos, Journal of Anthropology. Um, the Second thing that we talked about was about aerial spray, the environmental justice campaign against aerial spray. That piece appears in a chapter, uh, again, for the promise of multi-species justice, which is a book, an edited volume that is that was um, edited by Sophie Chow, Karen Bolander, and Eben Kirksey. Um, I have a number of uh, other pieces that are forthcoming um, in um, current anthropology. That's another journal. Um, and actually, um, that piece is called Plantation Liberalism, and it's about, it's actually, funnily enough, it is about questions of personhood. It's about personhood, long histories of colonialism, and ideas of property, um, thus the, you know, the focus on the idea of, on the ideology that is liberalism. So um, that should be coming out sometime soon as well. Uh, and the final thing that I'll mention is that I am proud to say that I am uh, co-editing a volume, an, another edited volume that's called Halo Halo Ecologies, the Emergent Environments Behind Filipino Food. Um, so I'm super excited about this. Uh, it's an edited volume that brings together a transnational community of Filipino um, food enthusiasts and scholars and activists. And um, we write about um, we write about the environmental underpinnings of our favorite Filipino food. And that should be coming out um, sometime soon with the University of Hawaii Press. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And that's been so much fun to to do it's a little bit less like strictly focused on plants um but there's certainly a lot of like plant life represented in that uh in in that edited volume um as well yeah awesome i look forward to reading those forthcoming works um and yeah staying in touch with um your research so thank you so much for joining us today your work is fascinating and so important and i just really look forward to um seeing more you know as you continue like more of your work thank you kate and thank you to everyone who's listening um it would be wonderful to continue this conversation with you all and to learn more about the in, your own interests and the work that you do in the parts of the world that you care most about Definitely. And you're always welcome back to the podcast. Um, if you ever want to talk more about forthcoming things um, or brainstorm projects. So <laughs> thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, if you're interested in reaching out to our group or learning more about our group, you can find us at networkingwithplants.org or email us at networkingwithplants.org at gmail.com. The 
music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth. <laughs> 